This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Connor from Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, I want to let you know about a very special offer we have for all our listeners. As many of you will be aware, we have migrated to the online space in recent months and launched a new subscription service called Intelligence Squared Plus. We've been having some fantastic debates and discussions from Mehdi Hassan on Iran to Thomas Piketty on capital and ideology. So if you would like to take part in these events, ask your questions to some of our speakers and even watch back all our previous events, then please go to intelligencesquared.com and subscribe today with a special 20% off discount using the code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And join us over the next few months as we deal with issues such as taming the coronavirus pandemic and look at the upcoming election in the United States with New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. So get started today and join the debate via the link in our podcast description. And this week we were joined by Ashley Dottie Charles, BBC presenter, DJ and author of the new book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking. And she had a really interesting conversation with Ash Sarkar, the journalist and commentator, all about how outrage is being used and co-opted in the digital age and how we might be able to reclaim our emotions and put them to more constructive purposes. So it's a fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Ash Sarkar, writer and senior editor at Novara Media, and I'm super excited to be here, well, in a social distanced kind of way, with Ashley Dottie Charles, BBC presenter and author of the new book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking. Welcome, Dottie. It's so good to meet you, even though I can't see you. How are you doing, Ash? I'm feeling good. How's your lockdown going? It's all right now that I'm back in the studio at work. I think I was going slowly insane working from home. I think working from home is a real test. Um, which I was failing, um, but I'm all right now. I think I mean, you've now you've got that a I'm, toddler, right? I have, which makes which makes working from home even more of a challenge. Uh, but yeah, he now wants to be a radio presenter, so some good has come of this. I mean, that's pretty good. One of my uh, my brother is just like it feels like being in a hostage situation, and my cat is <laughs> like two foot tall. <laughs> that is so accurate. I wish I came up with it myself. Well, you can steal that one because he doesn't have a career in the public eye. So, <laughs> so he'll never know. He'll never know. I don't even know if he'll listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> more for him. I mean, so I just want to jump right into it. You describe yourself in the book as a social media crackhead, and, and I can relate to that. So when did you first realize that you weren't a recreational user, you know, dabbling here and there, you know, special nights out? You were an addict. Um, I realized I was a social media crackhead when I would start to post things and then obsess over their performance. You know, like you might put a picture up and you'll just get on with your day or you'll 
post a tweet and then just close the app. I would post a tweet and then I'd need to check if anybody had replied to it. And then I'd need to check if anyone had retweeted it. And then I'd post a picture and I'd be like, okay, how has it performed? And I realized that this uh, sort of this egocentric attitude that we have to, to social media is actually quite insidious in other ways and um, was actually a big, big basis of the book that I wrote. I mean, do you feel that that was something that was always in your personality, that maybe you're a bit competitive or you were driven by numbers or was it the design of the platform? Oh, it's look, it's absolutely the design of the platform coupled with my vocation. I think we in these positions when we, you know, if we're, we're broadcasters or people that are influencers or authors or just writers where you kind of, you're measured on your reach, you're measured on engagement. So as soon as there is this platform that gives you a metric, which allows you to sort of measure that in really, really simple ways, you you can inadvertently start to obsess over your performance. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, my partner's not on social media when he can see me getting really het up about something. He's like, these people aren't real. They're just handles. Why Why is this in your head so much? Why is this bleeding over to your everyday life? Do you find that is something which has affected your real life relationships as well as changing how you relate to social media platforms? Well, I, I like to think of myself as a, as a social media addict in recovery. So I've kind of, I've done the rehab and I'm kind of on the other side and I can be like somebody else's sponsor in social media anonymous. Because I do feel like I've actually come out the other side. My relationship with social media now is so different to the relationship I used to have with it. And I think that is because I did recognize that it was impacting me in a way that was unhealthy. I think we can switch social media off, but we can't always switch off the way it makes us feel. So if I've gone onto Twitter and I've read something that's upset me, that sits with me long after I've logged off the app. And I I think I just started to recognize um, the power I have to curate my own online experience. We don't give ourselves enough credit for um, the amount of control we we have over our lives, over our experiences, over what we consume. And as soon as I sort of reminded myself of that power, my relationship with social media completely changed. And now I kind of, I use it for what it is. It's a, it's, you know, a vehicle. It's something that can, can sort of spark conversation, but it's not where I continue my conversations or where I hang out for a a long period of time trying to engage in dialogues. I mean, you're starting to sound dangerously sensible and optimistic. So I'm going (laughs) to drag you right back to the darkness years where you really (laughs) lost your way. You know, it's the bit in the Martin Scorsese films where it all starts to come apart. Oh, Um, yeah. Tell me about how you came to write this book and where the seed of the idea came from. So I wrote this book, actually, it was inspired by an article I wrote. So I wrote an article in January of 2018 for The Guardian, which was me responding to a backlash that H&M were experiencing over a hoodie. So H&M, many people remember in 2018, had a hoodie, a wild style series. And one of the hoodies said coolest monkey in the jungle. And they had this advertised by a black boy. And there was mass outrage, which suggested that this was a racist decision made by 
um, H&M. Now, as a black woman myself, I have to kind of be selective in what I'm outraged by. Like on paper, there is so much that could and perhaps should outrage me. But because I don't want to give myself an aneurysm and be in a perpetual state of outrage, I try to be selective. So I try to look at things and say, is this something that I should get really outraged about? And should I allow this to impact my mental health? And should I engage in the uh, dragging of H&M? And I realised that it just it just didn't warrant it. In my view, this was outrage gone mad. So I wrote an article talking about how we were kind of devaluing the currency of outrage by using it on trivial things like a H&M hoodie. And when I was writing this article, I realised that this was the outrage industry is huge and it's kind of it's quite difficult to sum it up in sort of 2000 words so as soon as i did the article i had this appetite to to write the book but what really fueled it was people responding and sharing that article it went it, it went a bit viral and it was it was shared widely and people were saying yes let's have let's have this conversation um because outrage is in uh a place where it's almost become ineffectual because we are just perpetually outraged and therefore we're not actually getting anything done. Can we have this sobering conversation? And people were saying, write another article, write another article. Um, and I, I realised that it was, it was so much more than an article. It was something that really needed to be unpacked. And so I spent two years unpacking it <laughs> and now we have a book. No, also, you're like, I'm going to need a bit more than that 100 quid Guardian comment fee. This is a this is a book deal, my friend. Um, give 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 me some more zeros after look, that comma, mate. This is more, like look how viral it went. I'm not I'm not having you know, Catherine <laughs> snap up all the peas. Um, I mean, in, in in that piece, you you phrase it as um, when people are getting outraged and they're participating in social media and they're really invested in that dragging. They're also saying something about themselves as much as the thing that they're criticizing. And what they're saying is. I am offended, therefore I am principled. So there's this element of projection that you identify. And one of the things I was wondering when I read your, you know, diagnosis is that there are also different kinds of offense. So there's responding to what you might call a micro event, like the H&M hoodie thing, which is this little snapshot moment, which gets amplified through social media. And then there's something like when people saw the slave auction in Libya or police brutality, which is offensive to our sense of human dignity. But by the time these things reach a mainstream media audience, it's all been flattened and reduced into a question of offence, which both elevates one thing and minimises another. So do you think that the word offence is enough to encompass this kind of mood you're talking about? Or is there a different word we need, a different kind of feeling we're identifying? I think that outrage is, is scalable. And the transgressions that spark our outrage are, are scalable. You know, something that you may consider a misstep, I may consider like a, a, a real, real crime and vice versa. And I think part of what this book is for is to kind of encourage people to recognise the, the power they have. And part of that power is, yes, when should you and when should you not be outraged, but also recognizing for yourself in your own terms when something warrants your personal 
outrage. And that's not to say that we, you know, we shouldn't be allies. There are times when we can lend ourselves to conversations uh, that, although do not directly impact us, we have a sort of a, a moral obligation to to further that movement. What I'm talking about is quite often these smaller transgressions or offences that at times we are we are responding to because the masses are responding to. And that's why um, on occasion, and in fact, I'd say more often than not in social media terms, the the crime is so uh, so disproportionate to to the fallout. And I think we see that a lot. And I, I look at some of those case studies in the book, times where the reaction has in, in no way been in keeping with the actual size of the the offence. But as as you say, sometimes it's an offence. Sometimes it's a it's a misstep. Sometimes it's a grave error. And I think different things are, are, are different to different people. I mean, for me, one of the most fascinating bits of the book, and I was hooked, was when you're interviewing Rachel Dolezal. And yeah. you reached out to her, you got the story behind the social media outrage. And it seems to me that you were still really conflicted about her as a person, because on the one hand, she's talking about how perhaps she was unfairly targeted for sounding the alarm on an instance of police brutality, the death of Lorenzo Hayes in Spokane. But on the other hand, and you kind of end on this question, you know, she's arrested for various kinds of fraud. And so that interaction with her, what do you feel you came to understand about her that you didn't have a grasp of before? And I know this is a bit binary, but what do you think? Con artist or victim? Um, do you know what? So the thing with Rachel Dozel and the reason why I wanted to include her in this book is because not that I don't care about Rachel Dozel as an individual, because I think as a person and her her crime, quote unquote, for anybody who's not familiar with the story, is she was a white woman that was pretending to be black. And in doing so, look, she was occupying spaces that were intended uh, for black women. She was speaking on issues which she had never experienced. There was many layers to why that choice she made was problematic. But to me, she is one woman in Spokane, Washington, a place I've I've never been and I assume will never go, right? So how she ch- chose to identify was kind of secondary to me in this book. What what I cared about was how that one person's story in this place that we'd never heard of was suddenly huge news. It was a n- national outrage and what is it? What what can we learn? from her story and what does it tell us about the mechanics of outrage so i think rachel dozel as as an individual is nowhere near as fascinating as what her case study actually tells us about who we are in matters of outrage and i'm and i'm to answer your other question i am conflicted cuz look it's a, a, a white woman pretending to be black and let's let's remind ourselves she was pretending to be black she was found out, then she doubled down on her blackness. She didn't, she didn't say, do you know what, you got me. She just continued to uh, claim that she was transracial. And then she spoke to me and done an interview in which she kind of tripled down and she was still adamant that she was black. So, of course, there's something nuts going on there. Um, but my purpose wasn't to sort of psychoanalyze um, 
Rachel Dozel and whether or not she's an absolute psychopath. It was more in the context of outrage and to see what what her story tells us about ourselves in matters of outrage. So what do you think that particular instance told us about ourselves? Because I remember the story breaking and I thought it was absurd. And I also thought the anger that I'm seeing directed at her is a reflection of the fact that for lots of black women, they see that the cultural forms that they've pioneered, whether it's slang or fashion or hair or music, is appropriated and then they get erased from that whole story. So everyone wants black culture, but nobody wants black people. You know, that for me is what what the outrage was speaking to. But for you, what was that story telling? It was, I mean, that was a big part of it. I think she's, by sort of enacting this black face in the extreme, she was kind of the the very picture of white supremacy in that she was even able to be black and more successful um, than than s- some black women. Look, let's not forget this is a woman who was in, a, in an extremely high position within the NAACP. She was given access to spaces. She was holding the uh, sort of police commissioners uh, accountable. Here was a white woman that could pretend to be black and be sort of given the keys to the city, right? There's a huge issue in that. There's also, as you rightly say, the issue of, of cultural appropriation. Um, but I think what... Rachel Dozel tells us about ourselves is in matters of outrage we often we go for what is within reach right Rachel Dozel is one human being it's much easier to take her down as 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 a mob it's much easier for us to say do you know what everything that you represent is an affront to uh, to black womanhood and we are going to take you down. It's much easier to do that. That's within reach. She's one woman in Spokane, Washington. It's easier to do that than it is to start to dismantle the systems that allow a Rachel Dozel to thrive, right? And quite often we do. We just go for the thing that's easier. It's very hard to start to, you know, dismantle the patriarchal patriarchy to start to, you know, dissemble systemic racism. These are huge, huge mountains, right? Mm-hmm. Rachel Dozel is a mohill and it's much easier for us to just say, oh, do you know what? We can kind of, we can have that argument. We can fight that fight and just drag this person rather than taking on the mammoth task of, of addressing institutions. And I think that is at times where we go wrong because what did, what did uh, black women gain? by quote unquote cancelling Rachel Dozel very little but you see in the the, the current climate of this real um this uprising uh, of, with black lives matter at the moment you're seeing when there is a, a an attempt to shift attitudes in institutions and when we say Do you know what we're going to make these infrastructures crumble and burn you see that there is a renewed impetus and that there is tangible change you know you're seeing people like you know the, the the mayor of new york saying you know what we're gonna funnel money out of the p- police department and we're going to uh, put that into education you're seeing new laws uh, in the wake of, of of brianna taylor you're seeing increased arrests you're seeing people being forced to uh, to take accountability there's been more achievement 
and more progress in in the past sort of three weeks of uprising in it, sort of fueled by the Black Lives Matter movement than we had after sort of three months of dragging Rachel Dozel. And I think that's where we need to kind of assess what we are putting our, our efforts into. But I mean, this is also the point where you know something which is just culture wars which is sort of lots of hype around what you might call a micro event and it sort of plays you know its role in dictating the media cycle tips over into a real political conflict which brings people out into the streets and as you said it achieves real and tangible change but Mm. there's not necessarily like a very neat dividing line between them and the black lives matter movement's a really good example of this right so when black lives matter first comes out after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, it was a culture wars thing. It was that's how it was covered in the press. You had, you know, even Piers Morgan being like, "All lives matter." He's now changed his tune after the death of George Floyd. When Colin Kaepernick first took a knee, he was blacklisted. He was presented as public enemy number one. Whereas now you've got all of these elements which are now uh, being seen as actually the acceptable compromise right between mm. what we had before and what the protesters are are pushing for and so the thing that I wanted to ask you about that process is well the first time you hear an idea and you get a sense of people's anger through social media it's dismissed but actually that outrage it doesn't necessarily fizzle out it can sometimes deepen into people's consciousness and be a catalyst for something much bigger a few years down the line. Do you know what? I think you're you're absolutely right. Social media can be, and the internet in general can sort of, it can be to the betterment of activism and it can be to the detriment. I think it's kind of a double-edged sword because it does, it kind of gives you a, a, a platform that allows you to do the bare minimum. It does. But what it also does is it gives you a vehicle that can be innovative and can mobilize your your activism. And I think it depends on whether the conversations continue offline. I think a lot of people, you rightly say, with 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 Black Lives Matter, with look, with Me Too, look with Mute R. Kelly, there are mm. so many conversations. Um, about accountability, uh, about progress that starts online. You only see the change when the conversation continues offline. So look, while the, while the social media can spark the conversation, it's down to us to continue the dialogue uh, in the real world. And I think that's where we see some online movements fizzle out and where we see some, as you say, really gather momentum. I mean, one of the things that you said, I think, quite early on in the book is that outrage is sometimes driven by an expectation of racism rather than the intention of racism. Does racism always have to be intentional discrimination? And how do you draw that line between someone projecting because they occupy a marginalized position and they're so used to, you know, bullshit, to be blunt, that, you know, they're now just expecting it everywhere and actually that sort of plausible deniability area where people can say well I never intended this to be the consequence of my action but it certainly did have racist effects how how do you distinguish between these things I think it's look it's difficult to to distinguish and I think what we what we all need to do what we collectively need to do is we need to interrogate our subconscious I think 
well, I was just having this conversation today. I think we all need to interrogate our subconscious because uh, speaking about racism, uh, as you mentioned, there are times when uh, a, a white person may say something, not realizing that what they've said is rooted in white supremacy. They they don't realize that their views have kind of been infiltrated by this quite insidious set of beliefs, right? And they find themselves having views that are problematic. And they'd say, "Well, I'm not. I'm not racist. Racism isn't just hurling the n word out at somebody. You know, it is. It's th- the way in which it manifests itself in in microaggressions, in um, behaviors that are uh, sort of." riddled with this subtext of of prejudice and you you need to uh as 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 white people interrogate your subconscious but i also find myself interrogating my own subconscious when i consume things and saying shit is this offensive to me or have i been beaten up so much by the world that my sub my subconscious defenses are going up and encouraging me to view this as as offensive and i think that's the dichotomy in that we kind of on both sides need to be interrogating those sort of unconscious voices that are telling us a that we're not being offensive which i think a lot of people lean on and say oh i had no idea that this was offensive i had no idea but also in seeking out offense i think we need to be aware that sometimes we are and you know what rightly so mind rightly so like if you have been a, a victim of systemic racism, of misogynoir, misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, you have every right, yeah, to feel as though you need to be defensive, to feel as though that there are things that are an affront to your very being, right? And it's not it's not as easy as saying, oh, calm down, you're being too sensitive. And that was something I was conscious about when writing the book it's not about saying you know everyone calm down everyone stop being so sensitive everyone stop being pc no it's it's not about that it's about making sure that all of our decisions are sort of made with due care really and i think i think we all need to do more of as i say what, what i call interrogating our our subconscious but particularly people that sort of lean on that age-old defense of I didn't mean it in that way which we hear all the time and it's like it's it's gaslighting right and it's like you need to you need to figure out the the root causes of of um of your views because they can be very damaging when they go look when they go a um unchecked but when people are not holding themselves accountable I think that's when we have real ongoing issues Well, this seems to be a really good time for a quick break because when we come back, we'll discuss someone who definitely very much knows what they're doing and the kind of offense they cause. So we'll be back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, (sighs) well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so I'm back for Intelligence Squared with Dottie talking about her new book about social media outrage and what it's doing to all of us. So again, another fascinating interview, which is in this book, is with none other than Katie Hopkins. Now, we've been talking so far about people who do things unconsciously and who aren't aware of the effect that certain kinds of language or their actions, what effects that has on marginalized people. But Katie Hopkins is many things, but I don't think you could say she wasn't self-aware. So <laughs> so what was that interview like? What did you glean from her? So Katie Hopkins, she is what what words do you use for Katie Hopkins without using expletives? It's tough. <laughs> it's tough to uh, approach this without using all manner of swear words. But look, Katie Hopkins is a bit of a stain on humanity. I'm sure many people will agree. In writing this book, though, I was looking at the outrage industry and how people benefit from our innate uh, desire to defend ourselves and our our innate need to kind of combat anything that is an affront to, to our very being. Katie Hopkins is somebody who has figured that out and has turned it into a business model. Mm. So my conversation with Katie Hopkins was coming from a place actually of cynicism. It was me looking at this person as a, an intentional villain, almost as, as a character, because I'm, I'm of the very firm belief that although Katie Hopkins probably over time has begun to subscribe to the hateful views she spouts, I think she created this character and she's kind of just got lost in it because the villain that she has created with, with brand Katie has kept her at the forefront of, of people's minds mm. for a decade, which is insanity. How, like how many people from The Apprentice do you remember by first and last name? Probably very few. Even if you religiously watch The Apprentice. I mean, I kind of feel that The Apprentice has been a force mind. for evil, you know? It's produced like Alan Sugar, Donald Trump and Katie Hopkins. I think it's time to... We need, there needs to be some kind of um, investigative reporting into the evil that had spawned from The Apprentice. I agree. But um, look... Katie Hopkins was just somebody who didn't even win. She wasn't even in the final of The Apprentice. But she's still a name that is so instantly recognisable now. And she wouldn't have got that 
by being nice. So she created a, a character which could provoke, which could uh, prompt engagement. And she's been dining out on it, as I say, for the, for the best part of a decade, which is why um, she's a sort of person I felt this book needed. You know, it's kind of a, a necessary evil when writing a book on outrage is that you kind of speak to the subjects of, of our outrage. And that means sometimes spending a great deal of time with the uh, Wicked Witch of the East, that is Katie Hopkins. I mean, one of the things that you point out in the book is that she wants nothing more than to be able to say that she is being targeted by a campaign to get her cancelled. That's what she gets up for in the morning. It's what she wants. So how do you strike a balance between denying somebody what Margaret Thatcher very famously called the oxygen of publicity, but also having a conversation about who gets a platform in the first place? What kind of voices do we elevate? And what does that come at the expense of? So how do you strike that balance? So I think this kind of goes back to to what I often say in matters of outrage, we need to be trying to cut down the tree rather than pulling down the branches. It's something that I return to because Katie Hopkins is a mere branch, right? She has been empowered by, oh God, the sun. She's been empowered by LBC. In fact, she's had two radio shows. She's had numerous columns. She was actually poached to go to another newspaper. Like these, these are the institutions with which we need to take issue. Not, not a person that they've empowered because there will just be another Katie Hopkins. Do you know what I mean? There are, right now, there are hundreds of thousands of Katie Hopkins online. But we've, we've empowered this one and we've allowed her to, to dine out on it. And I think we need to recognise, uh, again, how powerful we are. So say we, we, we get Katie Hopkins cancelled, because let's be honest, there was a couple of years ago, she got, she got fired from her last position. So she, she's off LBC and she's no longer being, being empowered by any of the sort of the, the, the big media platforms yeah, in mm. the UK. She's still she's still relevant because from her lowly IP, we are still engaging with her. So what like what do we want? If Katie Hopkins has been fired and we still we're still kind of feeding the beast by retweeting her and engaging with her, what are we actually hoping to happen? Do you know what I mean? I think mm. there should always be an end game. There should always be a goal. When you're outraged by something, there should be a goal. What is the aim with Katie Hopkins? Like, what do we stand to gain from engaging with her? I mean, I suppose this also speaks to a huge change in how the media works as an industry. So once upon a time, there was a very clear hierarchy between, you know, print media, broadcast media and what you might call self-publishing, right? Which was initially what social media was. But Mm. then, you know, Facebook and Twitter just completely explode. And at the same time, you've got declining newspaper sales. You've got, you know, an aging population watching mainstream broadcast media. So you've got a whole generation of young people who aren't following their parents in terms of viewing habits. And that balance of power, it hasn't necessarily been turned upside down, but it's not so clear as to say, you know, once you get someone off the mainstream media, they no longer have power. It's just this much more nebulous and weird power, which is driven by our own engagement. So the more we say K 
Katie Hopkins is a problem in society, Katie Hopkins can become a problem in society because that's the right. engagement. I think, do you know what, what, what we do, and it's, it's crazy how we do this so much, is we, we give life to the things we, we want to die. You know, mm. we kind of, we, we inadvertently kind of boost the exposure of the things we less we wish had less reach, you know, and I think Katie Hopkins uh, as a as a case study is is an interesting one because quite often I, I don't follow I don't follow Katie Hopkins, right? I I actually never have followed Katie Hopkins, but I see so much of what she says because of people that I do follow retweeting her and then above the retweet saying how do you get off on saying blah 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 and it's like you've now exposed that view to more people you have increased its reach and I think again it's about recognizing our own power I wrote this book so that people would feel empowered and and realize how much control they have when it comes to outrage and how much they can actually use it for progress because you give so much power to Katie Hopkins when you engage uh, and when you retweet. And it's not just Katie Hopkins. If you want, if you want something to die, you cannot give it life. And that is, that is what we do so often uh, when, when engaging in, uh, in sort of a war of words with, with people like, with people like her. I mean, what, one of the things that um, I really liked, and this was towards the end of your book, and I really liked the conversational way in which it's written so it's not this like very dense very like academic very dry text you can hear your voice and there's a lot of life and vibrancy in it 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 feels like your mate is talking you through a set of really complicated ideas but you can understand at every point and that's a really really nice thing about the writing and one such element was when you wrote, yeah, it's fun to kick big corporations in the dick and there are a few things more satisfying than a sniveling plea for mercy. But when someone is backed into a corner, holding their hands up and pleading for forgiveness, outrage no longer has a purpose. And so one of the things that you talk about is that, well, brands, they back down and they'll apologize and they'll hold their hands up and go, you know, we apologize for the offense we've caused, but nothing really changes we're still caught in this cycle of offense and outrage offense and outrage and our society still looks unequal patriarchy is still there white supremacy is still there so in your mind what would a healthier culture around accountability look like and if we give up on outrage do we risk simply giving up on the idea that we can change the status quo at all i don't think we give up on outrage at all and uh, in this book, I, I say this isn't about being outraged less. It's about being, you know, outraged better. And, and I think we can be so much better in our outrage. And look, let's be honest, trivial outrage is at times look escapism from like real trauma, right? So if you have experienced the real trauma, for example, of of racism on a real on a real life scale, as I said, it can be a bit of escapism to start slagging off some brand that has done something, you know, a little bit off colour. Because it's, again, it's it feels surmountable. It feels like, a, you know, a bit of escapism. It's not 
take Dolce and Gabbana, for example, who have mm. who have been a, sort of a problematic brand in this area. Look, they're not the biggest culprits. You you know, you shut down Dolce and Gabbana f- for argument's sake. You know, the world's racism issues don't go away. You probably don't even feel any any dent in it. But it's it feels good sometimes. Um, as I said, to just kick a corporation in the dick, and it's 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 about figuring out where our outrage is is best placed. And I don't say this to kind of be dismissive of of outrage. I I completely understand why we at times engage in what face value looks like frivolous outrage. There are so many reasons, some of which I explore in the book, but I think we just need to be a bit more diligent uh, and vigilant in our outrage because not everything requires it. Do you think that this particular kind of outrage that you're identifying is that it comes from a place of disempowerment? So you talk about there being times in the past where outrage was more effective and it was focused and it secured wins, whereas we've seen a kind of perhaps slow uh, disintegration of some of the progress that was achieved, you know, progress uh, stalled and in some cases it went backwards, but instead we got given this tool of social media. So do you think that there's been a kind of bait and switch? We think that we're empowered by doing this, but actually we're just, you know, digging the hole that we're trying to escape from. I think social media, it does empower us. I think it, it it really can make us better activists. And I think there's a bit of snobbery around this term activist, which says, well, in order to be an activist, you have to be at the, uh, the front of the protest and you need to um, be uh, at, at all times, you need to be in a, in a state of revolution. All right. And activism can be in subtle forms of, of resistance and, I think it's important to recognize the limitations of of social media in that it is it's a great way to mobilize it is an it's an innovative platform that can uh, further the conversations but it's not going to be the forum within which we actually get things done and I think it's it's really about about figuring that out and that's it's what I, I try and do in the book is kind of take you on an outrage safari that says, yes, look, there are reasons why we engage in this sort of frivolous, disposable outrage. It's it's virtual signaling. We reaffirm our allegiances. There are so many reasons we we do engage in outrage. It can be a rush, but if it if it isn't rooted in activism, then it's never gonna bear the fruit of change. Well we mentioned earlier the explosion of Black Lives Matter protests across the world following the killing of George Floyd. And it feels that we're in a different moment politically. It's generation defining what's going on. So what do you think has changed since you wrote the book? And is there anything that makes you feel optimistic for the future? I don't know. I actually don't think anything has changed since I wrote the book, which is I'm so happy it's coming out now. But the reality in this book, which I, I found just rereading it myself the other day, is it's a book that could have come out last year. It could come out now. Uh, and sadly, it could probably still come out next year or the year after that, because we are in a pivotal time 
where we are seeing disposable outrage. Like, look at Dominic Cummings sort of breaking lockdown in comparison to George Floyd and the, the Black Lives Matter uprising, which were weeks apart, days apart, really, if we're looking at sort of media coverage. I think what we're seeing is the different ways that we can mobilise our our outrage. I think we need to we need to remind ourselves of how much change we can actually bring about. With Dominic Cummings, I think there was no real there was no real impetus behind the outrage. It was kind of like again, like kicking a corporation in the dick. What did like what do you want out of Dominic Cummings? He gets fired. Does the system itself change? No. Someone else does his job. The government effectively proceed as normal. But when there's a real aim, like with Black Lives Matter, when there is intent to dismantle racial bias, when there is this intent to burn white supremacy to the ground and there is a collective desire to uh, dismantle, you know, structural racism systemic racism when there is that sort of ambition and that goal and there's a collective movement towards it you see change and I think we need to remind ourselves that when we look back over the course of history at moments of real change nothing happened overnight you know the suffragettes didn't put in two weeks of work Martin Luther King didn't you know do an eight thread post on why we we needed a civil rights act I have a dream one of eight (laughs) (laughs) But um, as you say, yeah, it wasn't like one of eight in a thread. So I think we need to just be more sustained in our outrage and to realise that we have a real power to to affect change. Outrage was once sort of the mouthpiece of, of real, real activism. And I think what we're seeing in the midst of, 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 of this, which is why it's absolutely crazy timing that the book is coming out we're seeing again almost a sort of a renaissance of that old school activism and I think this will hopefully be a a watershed moment a new dawn in reminding us that our our outrage can really plant the seeds of of change so use social media to sustain social movements rather than yeah and you know it's many people will see something on social media which will spark a conversation and that is where social media can be so powerful in in raising awareness in heightening visibility right but it's so important that we continue those conversations offline you know so much of the 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 heightened awareness around the black lives matter movement is happening online but the real work is happening in the real world I mean, that seems like a really nice, optimistic note to end on. You've taken me on the journey of your recovery. I feel like I've been at the Betty Ford Clinic and, <laughs> you know, forced to go cold turkey and talk about my childhood and group therapy. And now maybe, maybe I can kick the habit of re- refreshing my Twitter feed. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the thing is, is that I'm an addict who doesn't want to change. Oh, shit. You know, the first step's admitting you have a problem. And I'm like, what problem? Um, yeah. Uh, okay. You're a long way away from your one week keyring that yeah. we give out yeah i think once I, you've managed to log out for seven days i mean you're I, I away away from that you'd be a very diligent sponsor <laughs> when you're ready when you're ready to kick the habit ash all right 
I am but a phone call away. <laughs> well, that can be podcast number two, or even the second <laughs> book, even the second book. Um, so, the Road to Recovery road to with Ashar <laughs> <laughs> Um Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Dottie. Um, just to remind everyone, her book is called Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking. It is a really accessible read. It's a really nuanced book, and it's something which I think feels so timely and so immediate. So definitely go out and get it. Um, Dottie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.